Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Are you looking for some interesting and practical teaching on classical education? Whether you are a home educator or a classroom teacher, or even a parent with children in a classical school, we have some really exciting webinar-style sessions coming this winter. Back by popular demand, Karen Glass and Kiernan Fiore are joining me to teach a seven-week immersion course on the fundamentals of a Charlotte Mason education. In addition, our new Snapshot series has a whole list of options for 2024. We are recording these, so unlike in the past, you will have access to videos if you en enroll in these snapshot series. Lastly, I have been invited by Society for Classical Learning to lead a narration intensive for their 2024 winter workshops. I'm really excited about this class. This intensive is designed for both classroom teachers and home educators. Participants will experience how narration is a grammatical, dialectical, and rhetorical art that lays the foundations for acquiring moral and intellectual habits. Check out the Society for Classical Learning Winter Workshops and scroll through to find out more about this in-depth workshop on narration. Links for you to check out all these courses are in the show notes of this episode. And don't forget to sign up for my monthly newsletter so you can stay up to date with all the projects and courses we will be offering this year. Some exciting new things are coming soon, and I don't want you to miss them. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Today, I have invited Dr. Philip Donnelly onto the program to talk about his wonderful book, The Lost Seeds of Learning, Grammar, Logic, and Rhetoric as Life-Giving Arts. I actually ordered this book as a pre-order before it was even published yet by Classical Academic Press because I love the title so much and I love the trivium so much that I knew I needed this book. Um, so I've been slowly and carefully reading it for a year. I have not finished it yet because I continue to read a few chapters and go back and reread and reread because it is that important and that good of a book. And I'm hoping all of our listeners after today's uh, podcast episode are going to run and buy this book and understand why it is so important for us to be reading this book. Um, so before we get into uh, what we're going to discuss, I want to have Dr. Donnelly introduce himself and tell you his background. So welcome to the show, Dr. Donnelly. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Do you want me to describe just a little bit of my background? Yes, I, I please. Are, um, my professional background is, uh, to call it my day job, is as a professor of literature, specifically Renaissance literature. And I teach at Baylor University in the Great Text Program. And I've been there now 20 years, and uh, it's been an amazing experience. Uh, I couldn't ask for better colleagues or students or things to teach. So it's been quite wonderful here uh, teaching at Baylor, where there really is a distinctive uh, Christian community that also um, uh, is uh, training students in uh, the uh, in the first order uh, skills of both uh, research and uh, and inquiry. So it's uh, and that's where I've been for yeah, 20 years. So. Okay, so that's why this book is so important because it, it actually informs how you teach. Yes, 
<laughs> Very much so. And yes, in reading the book, we we could tell, uh, Kiernan and I read this book, and we could tell that you are definitely good at applying the trivium because of some of the examples you give in the book, that, it, that this book is going to have some very practical um, information for teachers who want to know, okay, how do I do this? I, I get it, but how do I do this? Although this book is very dense and beautiful. Um, what I want to do is something a little different, new to our audience, maybe has never heard me do this before. There are so many beautiful sentences and ideas and profound truths in this book that what I'm going to do is read several just two or three sentence quotes from various pages in the, like the first 60 pages of the book, just a few quotes here and there, because I want you to hear where we're going with our conversation and why it matters so much. So just uh, buckle your seatbelts and listen for a few minutes. I'm going to read some of these quotes and then Dr. Donnelly and I will break down and talk about why he wrote the book and, and get into some of these quotes. Cause I know you're going to be interested in hearing more. Okay. This one is from the introduction he says, the power of a seed to communicate life provides an image for what these arts can become in light of the incarnation. Rather than constructing these arts as tools they serve only human that serve only human purposes, the seed image reminds us that words can be a form of self-giving among persons, both human and divine. And another quote from the introduction, he says, what is at stake in the contrast between these visions of language as a neutral tool or as a seed is whether we have the ability to imagine that our own words are more than a self a form of self-serving fabrication. If we lose the ability to imagine how words are like seeds, we risk presuming that language cannot serve any purpose greater than our own. Okay, and the next quote is on page 20, the bottom. He says, a Christian understanding of the verbal arts aims to instill a contrasting set of habits. One, the recognition that some things worth knowing may be difficult to understand at first. Two, the appreciation that the consequences and relevance of what we learn may take much time and patience to become clear. And three, the expectation that a revelation of reality may call for a profound change in life. All right, page 22. He says, as participants in the culture of global information technology, we are formed to presume a notion of neutral tools that does not actually apply to any of the tangible tools that we use. This is why when people talk about the verbal arts as the tools of learning, we need to be careful and clear. When we use such terms, we are predisposed to misunderstanding the nature of the arts because the purpose of tools, the ends that they serve, are assumed to be merely a matter of human choice. Thus, whether we consider grammar, logic, or rhetoric, we will misconstrue the verbal arts if we imagine them as neutral tools. This does not mean that all use of a tool metaphor needs to be rejected. Rather, we need to recover an understanding of each art as a purposeful tool rather than a neutral tool. And I love this. We're going to get into this because I think it's extremely important to our conversation today. What then is at stake in whether we imagine the verbal arts, our knowledge of verbal making as tools or as seats? First, 
Tools serve purposes that humans choose, and they are moved only by mechanical force. By contrast, seeds have life inside them, a life that humans may shape, but which is not of human origin. So we'll get into uh, seeds and the act of seeds with language in a little bit here. Um, okay, page 25. Thus, if our manner of speaking about the verbal arts is limited to the image of tools, then Christian education will risk captivity to the modern view of learning as a neutral tool. And I think we have, we are there <laughs> in a lot of schools. So we need to address that, which is why this book is important. Um, page 50, he says, grammar in this sense um, names a reality that mediates between these two customary sources of grammatical pain. This reality might be described as an interpersonal apprenticeship in the productive use of words. Another implication is this, understanding grammar as a productive art, a living knowledge oriented toward making can help us to avoid the twofold misery of dead information and frustrated judgment. <clears throat> Page 51, he says, I contend that grammatical subjects, verbs, and objects relate to each other in the way that they do in order to gesture towards some aspect of how actors, actions, and things in the world relate to each other. In short, language gestures beyond itself through relationship among words. As a result, to teach the grammar way, grammar of any academic discipline is to help students understand how the words regarding any reality can form the whole person, whether the intellect, the imagination, or the affections. And I have two more quotes. Page 57. The root issue in teaching the grammar of any discipline is for both the teacher and the student to recognize that grammar is ultimately about faithfulness to reality. Specifically, whether our words are faithful. As students mature, they will also grow in their capacity for judgment regarding what is appropriate in a given instance. Students who form the habit of noticing the different ways that words and reality interact with will be prepared to handle new subjects or modes of inquiry as they arise. They will be in the habit of asking questions such as these. What are the assumed definitions in this text or speech or lab report? And what ethical judgments and purposes are implied by this word? A more advanced student of rhetoric will also ask about the purposes of whole discourses. And I love this because he's giving examples of the types of questions that we want a classical classroom to have. And then, and today we're only talking about grammar. We're not even getting into logic or rhetoric because there's so much here about grammar. Okay, page 64, he says, if we find ourselves relying on the word information as a substitute for grammar, then we can reasonably ask whether one of these elements is being obscured, whether there is a tendency to ignore or conceal either the people involved, the verbal forms at work, or the purposes being served. The assumption that grammar is the same as information has direct consequences for educational practice. And I'm going to stop there because I agree that if we view grammar as information, it's going to definitely inform how we teach in the classroom. That's why this episode is so important and why I had to read so many quotes to set up how Dr. Donnelly is going to unpack for us what he's saying here about grammar 
as one of the seeds, one of the lost seeds of learning in the trivium. So I want to let you answer to any of those quotes or begin with telling us why you wrote the book. So uh, take it away. <laughs> well, I'll start by saying a little bit about why I wrote the book. Uh, as I mentioned, I'd studied Renaissance literature, and that was the thing I focused on in, in my professional work. And I noticed that all of the the writers that I was studying had studied grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and that was part of their education uh, going back to the, the Renaissance, the 16th and 17th century in England. And I realized, though, when I encountered uh, people in our contemporary context who were uh, interested to recover the role of the trivium in contemporary education, uh, they were they were interested in in thinking through uh, well, what does grammar look like in light of Christian faith? But they were doing it as though, as though they were the first people to answer, ask this question. And what I realized through studying the tradition is that a version of an answer to that question regarding whether grammar or logic or rhetoric, a version of that, that question has been answered uh, regularly throughout Christian history, beginning with Augustine um, or um, even uh, some of the, the Greek church fathers, uh, extending all the way uh, through the Middle Ages, uh, whether it be um, John of Salisbury or of Hugh of St. Victor um, or, um, or um, Bonaventure. There's any number of, of uh, people writing on this very question. So uh, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel, although we need to think about what it looks like in our context, obviously, and what this means. But I was, um, I was set out then to provide a direct answer to the question, what then happens to these arts when we understand them in light of the incarnation of God's logos? And uh, this gave rise to a number of other um, kind of insights. The central one is that I, I realized that each of the arts tends towards its own version of what I call despair or presumption regarding what that art can do. Uh, so if you think about grammar as uh, knowledge of causes regarding how to use words to make faithful and appropriate renderings of reality, uh, uh, there's, a there's a genuine concern over time that people can either presume too much about words, what, what words can do, or too little. They can either you know, engage in despair, presumption or despair. And the same with logic and its ability to get at truth or the um, rhetoric and its ability to persuade people. Uh, and what I realize is that the incarnation is essential for a chastening of both the, the despair and the presumption. And uh, that is to say that words can have meaning uh, because God's divine word has entered human history. And, uh, and yet that's also an occasion for recognizing our own finitude uh, and our own fallenness um, and the, the conditions that, that we have to work through. But that's not an necessarily an occasion for for despairing of language altogether. So, um, and I realized then that the um, the biblical image of seed was crucial in preserving uh, that appropriate uh, chastening of of the the verbal arts, and that when we reject that seed image, or we, we when we forget the seed image, we tend to, to fall into the either despair or presumption regarding what these arts can do. And uh, and that also, I think, to some extent, also applies to the quadrivium, the, the mathematical arts as well. But I'm focused here on specifically the verbal arts. So uh, that's what led me then to to think through the the seed image um, as it relates to these arts, and then to think um, about what the limitations 
of the tool image uh, are. And um, uh, then I realized at that point that there was also some confusion in our culture about what in fact a, a tool is. And, and that's uh, why I have to start with first clarifying the distinction between what I've called uh, purposive tools versus the vision of tools as neutral. Um, and uh, to clarify that uh, I think it is possible to think of the verbal arts as being like tools uh, in some ways, as long as we don't mistake them for for merely neutral tools, which is I that's just a really a, a name for a, a misunderstanding of the nature of tools, which we can I can explain a little bit more mm -hmm. about them if you want. Yeah, go ahead. That'd be great. Sure. So so in our culture, we um, we tend to assume that that uh, tools are simply uh, um, the tool, the purpose of tools is is arbitrary and it's subject entirely to human uh, decisions. Um, and that if if you were to ask people about whether there's a purpose in things, they tend to be skeptical to say, well, you know, if I wanted, I could, in fact, you know, use my uh, my smartphone as a doorstop if I wanted. Uh, right. And it's that confusion about what's possible versus what's the highest purpose, uh, what's the highest end that's available to a given thing. Um, again, you can use a a, a scalpel to cut a tree down, but it's probably not the most efficient way to, if you're, or if you try to try to do surgery with a chainsaw, that disaster will ensue, right? Oh, so, how about try to hang a, like use a, a screwdriver as a hammer? I've actually right. done that and it doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well. So <laughs> and the point of that experience or the thing about those experiences is to realize that there are purposes that is highest ends that are embedded in things themselves. Uh, and that's that's the notion of a purpose of tool, as opposed to, I would say, our digital culture's way of training us to think that given enough time, money, uh, software, and energy, we could transform anything into anything else, right? And it's it's a, um, a basically it's a it's a metaphysical belief in what the philosophers would call the plasticity of nature, right? And uh, if you uh, uh, are interested in instead in, in actually receiving the uh, the created order um, in a way that isn't simply controlling it as as uh, uh, for merely human purposes, then then you need something more than the image of a, a neutral tool. Um, and and the other part of this is is the deeply rooted presumption that the only purposes available are in fact humanly chosen purposes. Uh, that's the other part of the against I would say the neutral. Uh, tool image. Um, so the first challenge is to overcome that kind of confusion and to say, okay, if you're going to talk about the verbal arts as being like tools, then we need to remember that they are to some extent like tools, uh, but they're like purpose of tools. Uh, but then I suggest that even that image has limitations uh, insofar as it um, tools uh, end up uh, serving um, ends of human determination, but they're also in themselves, they're inert, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they're, and they're interchangeable. Uh, you know, one wrench is as good as another if it serves the purpose. Um, and uh, it's um, uh, in contrast to a seed that is, uh, has within it a life that doesn't originate from us. Um, and its purpose as a seed is to communicate life. Uh, and that, again, that purpose is not something that originates with humans. We can steward that, we can channel that in particular ways, but it doesn't originate with us. 
And it's also what I call genealogical in character. That is, there's a transmission of life from one individual particular seed to another. And I suggest that's actually very much like the way in which human knowledge of the arts in particular is transmitted over time between particular persons. So it's the role of what I call uh, the role of testimony, but also uh, uh, traditions of inquiry uh, over time uh, that between persons that make learning possible. And so uh, the seed image preserves that understanding also. Uh, so there's the element of, of purpose that doesn't originate from human beings, and there's the element of of its genealogical character, which is like the transmission of living knowledge over time. And so I think those are the key elements that that would get lost if your only image for understanding the verbal arts was like a tool. And um, so that's the, the crux of it. I would, um, yeah, we didn't, we kind of jumped in the deep end and didn't kind of walk yeah. through the definitions of kind of arts and then right. liberal arts and verbal arts, but but we could just clarify. Yeah, that. I would. That's okay. Yeah, I would love for you to walk us through some of those. Um, and just thinking through some of the quotes I read, what did you have thoughts come to mind while I was reading those that would uh, make you want to go back and define some things? Yes. So the um, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for reading those uh, those passages. Uh, it's great to hear hear them being taken to heart. Uh, I I suppose the the assumption uh, or the, the point being made at that stage is that um, uh, I've established a definition of, of art in general is uh, living knowledge regarding how to make something. So, uh, which is a bit counterintuitive because we don't typically use the word art to mean that. Um, and what, what I'm suggesting is that um, rather than thinking of art as meaning only you know, how we make beautiful things or even just um, the things themselves, the artifacts that we make, that an art, strictly speaking, is is this living knowledge of how to make something. And then when we think about the, the liberal arts, their knowledge of how to make things that consist of signs. So in contrast to the, the, the tangible arts or what are called the manual arts that make uh, tangible artifacts, um, there's the um, the liberal arts, which make uh, things that consist of signs, that is consist of either words or numbers or points. So they have the we have the mathematical arts that consist of numbers or points and lines. Um, but then there's the three what they call that they call verbal arts that consist mm -hmm. of words. So grammar uh, is knowledge of causes regarding how to use words in order to make faithful and appropriate renderings of reality. Uh, and I, I'll walk through and unpack what each of those um, elements in that definition involve. And then logic involves, a, similarly, a living knowledge of how to use words in order to make uh, rational arguments. Um, mm -hmm. That is, appeals to reason, whether it could be inductive or deductive. Uh, I focus specifically on deductive reasoning in this particular book, uh, but it includes inductive in principle. And then, uh, but it's how to make arguments. That's what you're, that's the distinction between logic and the other verbal arts. They all use words, but then they all have a different thing that they're making with the words. Whereas rhetoric is, again, living knowledge of how to use words in order to make uh, what I call whole persuasive discourses 
that engage the whole person. That is, they include appeals to reason, but also appeals to ethos and pathos. Uh, that is, appeals to uh, the affections uh, and to enjoyment as well as um, to ethical appeal. So uh, that's um, the kind of the, the way in which you can go from, you know, a definite art in general, the liberal arts, to the um, the verbal arts. And it's specifically this element that that the knowledge of the verbal arts comes through words and that knowledge itself is is alive is the thing that I think we are at risk of forgetting uh, mm-hmm. in our culture. And I would say that uh, it's the, the terms, uh, if we use the words memory, uh, intelligence, and language to refer to something that an algorithm t- can do, then we're misunderstanding all three of those things, actually. Ooh, uh, expand on that. I want to hear more about this. What were the three words? Memory? Well, memory, intelligence, and language, which, of course, are things that we now all do apply to things that uh, a computer algorithm can do, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The artificial intelligence or the memory of a computer or a computer language. Um, those are all metaphorical uses of those terms. Uh, but in our culture, people tend to forget that they are, in fact, metaphors. And they then mistakenly uh, reinscribe those uh, machine qualities back onto uh, human beings. So then we then mistakenly talk about our brains as though they're hardware and our on our consciousness as though it's software, for example, right? And that's right. Uh, that's a classic instance of of people remaking themselves in the image of the things around which they've built their lives. It's a very old story. Right. So it's almost like, uh, I, I hope I'm hearing you right, that we're taking the idea of memory, intelligence, and language, these metaphors, and we're we're attaching a wrong memory or a wrong metaphor to them? Like we're, a more useful, we, industrialized metaphor? Yes. Well, at, at root, it's presuming that a dead thing can do those things, right? That Ah, uh, okay. That um, uh, that an algorithm that is embedded in something that's not alive, in fact, can perform the act of memory, or the act of intelligence, or the act of of of, of a living language. Uh, and uh, of course, I'm not con- you know uh, quibbling about the mere meaning of the words, um, and recognizing that of course it's it's fine to use you know a computer algorithm kind of uh, language. Uh, to, to refer to language in that way. But if people don't recognize that it's a metaphor, that in fact a natural human language is uh, is something much greater than than an algorithm, uh, then then we've we've reduced ourselves um, with respect to our understand our, our self-understanding of memory, intelligence, and language. Um, and this is uh, something I'm this is these are the implications of of this account that I'm I'm still developing actually. Um, yeah, no, it's very beautiful. I mean, I love your seed metaphor so very much. I think there's so much to unpack in just understanding a seed and the life within a seed. And I love that you're tying this to the incarnation as well. I feel like I want you to spend a little more time unpacking that for our listeners. Sure. So um, the uh, I suppose the the way which it if you're to kind of summarize. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that that all words are like seeds, right? Because you know, right, in the right. case, some words are like poison, and and some words are like <laughs> like uh, 
like tools and some are like other things, right? So I'm not saying that's the only analogy, but I'm saying is what we need to do is preserve the image uh, and understanding that words can be like seeds mm -hmm. uh, in order to preserve uh, the possibility that words can serve intrinsic purposes that are not merely of human choosing, right? Because if we, if we assume that words are only like tools, then we're never going to be able to use words to communicate anything that's more than merely human. In that sense, preserving the image of a tool is crucial um, for preserving the very possibility of Christian faith being transmitted through words, right? Um, it's also uh, important that um, the seed image uh, then preserves this notion that a, that particular purpose could be, in fact, to communicate life, uh, a new life that is, is like, obviously, in the Gospels, like a resurrection. Um, and that such uh, life that's communicated is a divine gift, it doesn't originate from us. Uh, and that the very form of such communication actually can be self-giving or cruciform in the same way that a seed has to die. Um, and then finally, this element that, that such verbal giving and receiving is what I call traditionary in character in the sense that it involves living knowledge that relies on the testimony of particular persons over time. Uh, and that's just, that's just a condition of all uh, knowledge that's transmitted by means of words over time. Uh, and that's inevitable uh, insofar as nobody has in one lifetime the opportunity to, to find everything out for themselves. So we rely on testimonies all the time. And the question is, which ones are we going to believe um, and how are we going to navigate that? Um, so, and that's the character of, of human language generally. Uh, when we begin to speak a language, uh, our, you know, our first language that we begin to speak, we are in that very act inheriting a whole body of knowledge that goes with the words uh, and both connotations as well as denotations uh, by learning how to speak in a particular language. Uh, and again, that that living reality of human language is precisely the thing that's, that's not reducible to an algorithm. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I really love that you use the living, the word living language often in the book. Um, and our listeners know how much I love Charlotte Mason. Um, I bring her up all the time or my, sometimes my uh, guest brings her up, but there was a section here in the book that as soon as I read it, I was like, yes, this is why we read what Charlotte Mason calls living books. What a living book is, 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 um, here we go. Here's what you said. It was on the top of page 53. You say the power to do this well depends on both selecting the best words and ordering them appropriately for a given purpose. And this is exactly why we promote living books. These are books that have the best language in them, that it actually stirs within the reader and the listener a truth and there's a beauty and a goodness that's resonating with them. It's not just, she calls, Charlotte Mason calls it dry as dust textbooks, right? That right. just put us to sleep. Like the reason I thought I hated history was because when I was in high school, I learned from dry as dust test textbooks from teachers who talked like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 right? right? Yeah. So yeah. there was not that living power in the text, in the in the words. And I think that's really important to the movement. The classical education uh, movement is to restore the truth of how important it is to read 
from books and material that's living. And I think that you make that point very well in this book. And that relates um, also to the, the point that grammar is not simply information, right? Yes. Which is why your, your experience with those textbooks was so, um, you know, uh, disappointing as a student, because they're often operating from the assumption uh, that, that in a sense, uh, that if grammar is just information, that th what they call it the basics, right? If they think of it as only information, and I, I unpack this, the idea of information being the notion that you can have a content that doesn't need to account for the form or the purpose or the agent, like who's saying it or uh, so there's a way in which precisely that that notion that you can isolate content, uh, whether some learning content, that you can have a content that doesn't have a form, that doesn't have a purpose, that doesn't have an agent. Um, that's precisely when it becomes dead, uh, when we when we try to make it fit in those forms. That, when we're when we're self-conscious about the fact that, oh, this is somebody's story. So there's an agent. This is, you know, whose story is this? And 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 how is this story being told? What form is it being put in? And what's the purpose in telling this? And then you see the the content of what they're talking about as a dynamic uh part of that interaction between who saying it to whom and under what for what purposes in what way. When you put all that together, then it it's alive, right? That's right. what makes it come alive. And you, it's that interpersonal character of the communication that um, that makes it, yeah, interesting and um, engaging for students. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you teach Renaissance literature, and it sounded like uh, what you were saying is that that sort of guided you towards seeing the truth in the trivium in this way. Was there were there any particular Renaissance writers? You brought up a few or points from any of those writers that really um, kind of drove home in your heart the truth of all of this. Do you have any examples? Well, I would say I mean, I've spent most of my time uh, with people like uh, John Milton and and George Herbert and John Donne um, as you know the poets in the 17th century that I've I've worked the most with, but. Um, but the backstory to all of them is that they are the inheritors of a kind of Renaissance education that mm -hmm. is itself taking a position on a very old debate. Uh, and it was getting a window on that debate that really helped me to see the integral connection between the three verbal arts. And I can explain briefly. Um, yes. And, and this is um, part of a story that, that Marshall McLuhan tells to some extent. Yes, in that um, is such a great book. Yeah, on you're his, talking. His, yeah, the uh, trivium, uh, the Thomas Nash. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I have yeah. the yes, such yeah, a great. So, I, I have not read the whole book, but it's so very good, very interesting. Yeah, so, so the story that he tells there is that that the history of really Western uh, education and intellectual inquiry from uh, antiquity from the kind of the uh, early Middle Ages through or late antiquity through to the, the Renaissance period is is a story of the struggle between grammar, logic, and rhetoric, each basically right. arguing for supremacy over the other three. And of course, um, so what he ends up saying is that monastic education in uh, late antiquity in the early medieval period tended to be grammatical in its emphasis to say that basically, sure, you studied uh, dialectic a little bit and you studied rhetoric, but the 
the the supreme art was grammar because that mm-hmm. in the monastic tradition was the thing that would lead you to uh up in a sense up the chain of signifiers sure to yeah contemplate god himself right so it's the contemplative life and that's its orientation by contrast the late medieval emphasis upon dialectic and logic was part of scholasticism so scholasticism tended to say well, you know, grammar's good for getting started and, and rhetoric is nice, but the thing that's that's the, the supreme thing that's going to govern all the others is is this logic that's going to, and this use of dialectic that's going to, in a sense, get you to the supreme knowledge of God, right? And then in Renaissance uh, humanist writers uh, then came along and said, well, in fact, if all you've got is knowledge and you haven't engaged questions of ethos and pathos, right? If you're not engaging the affections, then you're also missing something important. And so there's a reaction against scholasticism, which they call humanism, um, saying, in fact, that that there's, you know, they are, and of course, it becomes a very pitted, uh, pitched battle and, and arguments uh, between scholastics and humanists um, that really persist through the uh, 16th and 17th century on these matters. Uh, but they're, what's interesting is that these are all arguments within the trivium. Right. And right. anyone who's yes. got a degree of common sense will recognize that it's never just an exclusive thing. And it's uh, everyone has a place for all three. And the debate is about which one should govern the others. Right. Um, and and you could tell actually a similar story even um, among the various canons of, of rhetoric, actually, about which one of the canons is supposed to govern the others and how they're related to each other. Yeah, this is so funny because this is like in the I'm Orthodox and in our we have the three hierarchs and there was an argument of which of the three is the best, St. John uh, Chrysostom, uh, St. Basil or Gregory the Theologian. And they ended up just becoming basically we honor all three on the same day, you know, because sure. yeah. Yeah, there really isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so and, and the tension there, I think, um, in, in practice arises from a sense of, of felt need. Right. Obviously, you know, someone living in a monastery who's pursuing the contemplative life has a has a different sense of felt need than someone living in the Renaissance who um, who's addressing, you know, contemporary political matters and has to engage in, in acts of persuasion in a more regular basis. Um, but the fact is that I think just to take a step back, the thing that I've come to appreciate is that they all recognize that you had to have all three. Um, right. And that that no one's arguing for their kind of. Um, for one to replace all of them, uh, and that they all have a, an important role to play, both in formation. I guess the other the other element here is is that they're all understood to be arts, uh, in the sense that they are not ends themselves. So that their their highest end is the pursuit of wisdom, the fullness of which is revealed in Christ, and that that uh, so they are they are a means to an end beyond themselves, um, in that sense. So you you study grammar and logic and rhetoric so that you can ultimately hear the divine voice better. That's really the purpose. I uh, love that you're bringing that up because you're right. That's the tradition. The classical tradition of the trivium is what you just described. And because of that, and its end is to point us towards wisdom in Christ. That is why I think your book is so important because you are trying to restore the trivium as living seeds, like you said, pointing us to wisdom, to Christ. And this, this, this idea of these tools isn't, isn't, isn't a living idea. It's not the same thing. So I I think your recovery of this is very important to the classical education recovery movement that we've been trying to, you know, recover the classical education model for so long. And I 
believe that this is really, really, really essential to the recovery to get this right. Um, it hasn't, it hasn't, I think very few people understand it well because it is complicated. And like you said, there was a debate for so long and unearthing all of this, because I've read a lot on the Trivium as well. And, you know, they were arguing and, and even like Augustine didn't even really talk about logic. He was just grammar and rhetoric. That's all he ever talked about. Yeah. So he does, so he I, does it's interesting that you mentioned that because he does have a place for dialectic. And if you read the confessions carefully, he does have these moments where he talks about doing dialectical inquiry. He specifically talks mm -hmm. about it. And it is in those moments where he's he's trying to find the truth and he um uh he's well he's trying to in some ways either expose falsehood um when he's cross-examining the the Manichaean bishop Faustus, he'll use it, right? Um right. and uh it does have a place in in uh but it's more directly in his case, it's subsumed under rhetorical invention. That's all I would say. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. You're right. You're definitely right on that for sure. But um I just want our listeners to take very seriously how important it is that we we understand the trivium in this way. And um, that's why I wanted to take the time to interview you for this for this book in particular. Um, <clears throat> what do you think, in your experience as a teacher, and and uh, what do you think are its implications in how you teach if you're looking at the trivium as sort of dead tools? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, at the most basic level, of course, it it shapes your your vision of what you think is going on in the classroom, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, whether in fact it's sufficient to just have your general principles that you're applying, like you're just running the machine, versus whether you're attending to the individual particular people in front of you uh, that you're in conversation with, and also how you understand yourself as a steward of gifts that you've been that you've received rather than simply information that you've downloaded right it's it's the difference between someone saying i've got this information these kids got to get the information in their head um and so that they can then have that information uh rather than this is a matter of life and death and um i mean as i tell my students if this were a chemistry class uh getting the right answer might merely be a matter of life and death but what we're talking about is bigger than that we're talking about what you're living or dying for, right? And and so there's these questions that are uh, unavoidable uh, that get raised in the texts that we're we're, we're read, uh, studying together. Um, and so I find uh, that 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 sense of purpose is important, both respect to, and 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 the sense of agency, right? The both the teacher and the the students are the the people involved, um, and the sense of well, how then do we best help the students? to understand what they need to understand, but also to develop the skills and to recognize that the skills can't be entirely detached. So when someone says to you, I wanna teach you to write really, really well about nothing in particular. So I'm gonna give you some vapid you know, article to read and then you're gonna work on your grammar skills. That's just not the way to do it, right? What you <laughs> wanna do is have people engaged with substantive, important, powerful stories and philosophical arguments and theological inquiries and that mm -hmm. that is the way in which then they learn to to engage in the care and feeding of words right that's um, right that's um, i would say that the other detail um in just in my own classroom practice is that i do often use um the 
what I call the, the four causes or the five questions, which is kind of the, the basics of the grammar of how to understand something. Um, it's not the only grammar, but it's a way of thinking when you're trying to say, for example, understand anything in particular, it can be very helpful to think about who the agents are, right? What the form is, what the content is, and what the purpose is, and then how they're connected. So that's the five questions. So like, who made it? And how did, you know, um, of what does it consist? Um, and what's the form of it, what the arrangement of it, and then what's its purpose? And then how do all those things connect to one another? That set of questions I find to be very helpful in introducing a text, um, whether it be, you know, thinking about who's the author, what's the genre, what are the themes and content, and what's the purpose. But you can bring it down a level to think about episodes inside a text or artifacts uh, that are not in the text, um, or thinking about um, even just lines, specific lines of poetry, right? You can ask the same questions up and down the scale of, uh, of and recognizing that this is ultimately um, uh, the communication of life that you're you're meditating upon rather than just a, a mechanistic thing. But the, but I think I find those four four causes or five questions to be helpful in thinking about uh, both introducing a text and thinking about the details of a particular passage. One of the, I'm going to go back to one of the quotes you, that I read on page 57, because I think this also uh, helps us, our, will help some of our teachers who are listening, where you said, I'm going to read it again, students who form the habit of noticing the different ways that words and realities interact will be prepared to handle new subjects or modes of inquiry as they arise. And they will be in the habits of asking questions such as these. And what I really loved about that, and I underlined modes of inquiry because, um, and I wrote in the margin, attending is foundational to grammar. And so learning to attend well, getting those habits formed is really important for, for the grammar mode formation. Um, but modes of inquiry really brought to my mind uh, David Norm's uh, book, or David Hicks' book, Norm's Nobility. Yes. Uh, I have a session I teach about creating a spirit of inquiry just based on one quote that he has on page 19, page 18 of his book. And he basically says that classical education is not about a specific time or place. Instead, it stands for the, the mode of inquiry questions, being able to ask it. it the spirit of class, classical education is rooted in the modes of inquiry. And he he goes down to to summer to basically explain the modes of inquiry, and giving students the opportunities and the time to hypothesize is one of those really important parts mm -hmm. of a mode of inquiry. Giving them that almost I want to call it like the curiosity framework in the classroom. And I feel like this part of this page in your book, you're you're kind of saying that you're saying that when you are allowing this grammatical formation to happen. The students are actually going to attend so well that they're going to know what good questions to ask. So you're actually truly forming the whole person to be able to think well, to be able to hypothesize. You're entering into that mode of inquiry if you're helping them to be formed properly as we should understand grammar. Yes, and I think that that element of attention is the the crucial you could tell it the cognitive skill that then lets you then to to make the to reflect on the connections between words and reality it to say you you've got 
three or four different synonyms that you could use and which one of these is the best word to use, well, then you have to think about, well, what is it that I'm referring to, right? And, and Or when you're looking or confronted with a either a new task or a new uh, inquiry or a new mm. thing you've never encountered before, how do you go about asking questions about it uh, in order to, to understand it? That's the moment at which you're you're kind of in the deep end, right? Of of living out your education, and and that's where learning to attend first is the 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 crucial skill. But then saying, okay, what are the what are the words I would use to name this the parts of this thing or the whole of this thing, and 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 how do they relate to one another, right? So you're thinking about what it is, but also how it's arranged and what sort of ends, what what purposes it has, and where does it come from, right? You're thinking about those sorts of questions. Um, in order to understand a given thing, or if you're on a new job and you've been given a new task, and you know, how do I go about doing this? Well, what's the purpose, and who am I doing it for, and how do I arrange this, and what is the content here? All those are kind of questions you will have internalized um, if if grammar is done well. Uh, that is, mm-hmm. you'll form the habit of making the connections between. You won't just think of grammar as simply words or punctuation marks, but you'll think of it as a vision of how to attend to the relationship between words and reality. Oh, I love that. Oh, that is really good right there. And uh, this is why uh, I think it's very important for teachers to help students learn the habit of attention. And I just don't think there's anything better to do that than narration and nature study. (laughs) I just think Mm. if you can set up a school, if a headmaster is listening, setting up a school, and you set it up with narration and picture study, you're going to be giving students opportunities to learn habit of attention, and that will carry over into everything because they'll learn how to ask questions about the things they're seeing in nature, and it will carry over into everything that they do. And the particular challenge in our culture is that we we inhabit an attentional economy where Mm -hmm. the devices in people's pockets are selling their attention. Uh, yes, that's they're they're the product being sold, and and that that actually is is a really uh, important thing for educators to be aware of that that the the challenge in training the attention is is to help them learn this uh, to to exchange easy pleasures for difficult pleasures, right? To be able to right. go the thing that just grabs your attention to the thing that that doesn't necessarily grab my attention, but I'm going to attend to it anyway, right? And being able to to gradually um, grow in your capacity to give the attention where it's not demanded by the, the the bright lights and sounds that are drawing our attention. So we're our capacity for attention is continually being assaulted and corrupted by the the addictive uh, uh, inducing, uh, addiction-inducing um, uh, attentional economy that we inhabit. So that's why it's important mm-hmm. to be proactive in, exactly. in the same way that if a person never walked, right? If you're always riding along in a seat, you lose the capacity to walk. You got to get up and walking around and use your legs to keep your walking capacity. Uh, and there are all kinds of benefits. In the same way, there's a cognitive benefit that comes from learning to pay attention to things that aren't just screaming for it. I think that's that's exactly right. And I think that because we live in a, a culture that has so much screaming at us, more so now than I think ever, <laughs> uh, we really need to be intentional in our schools 
to be setting forth a program that allows mm. them to attend to the things that are beautiful and true and good because we want them to attend towards what uh towards shaping right affections right so you're going to love that which you attend to and if you tend a lot to to something beautiful you're going to learn to have the right attention and i think that um we really need to I really want teachers to read your book. That's the bottom line. I want them to read your book because I think it will help them to understand and think about, okay, so what are some opportunities I can do in my classroom? Even a math teacher, a science teacher, they all need to read this book. What can I do in my classroom to help uh, these verbal arts to be central to how we communicate with one another in this classroom? And I, I, I think this is why we do know in the classical education movement that the trivium is so important. And this is why the trivium always traditionally came before the quadrivium. Right. Because in order to talk about numbers, you first have to understand words, language. Right. You have to be able to order your thoughts to be able to order numbers. Yeah. Now, and to be clear, it doesn't mean that you have to have you know, completed even, you know, your grammatical education before you can start your math, right? I mean, there's a way in which these correct, things correct. in a positive feedback loop. And, and I make the point that that although grammar isn't, um, I do think it's, 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 uh, it's not just a developmental model. It's not just like there's a grammar, a discrete grammar age. In fact, uh, but there is a sequence that we all go through uh, yes. in learning anything, right? When even at the age of 65, if you're learning how to uh, do a new thing, whether it be um, studying um, uh, uh, a creature in the world or a act, new activity or joining a club, the first thing you learn is how to use the words and then how to, how, what words are there are and how to put them together. And then you think about, well, what makes for, um, in fact, a, a logical inference in terms of, well, what makes for plausible speech, you know, uh, in this context, and then ultimately, you end up being able to engage in conversation with other people and persuade them uh, regarding that subject matter. But there's a, a positive feedback loop. Uh, yes, that you then go through with respect to understanding first the relationship between words and reality, and how words go together, and then making statements and propositions in a logical mode, but then also um, engaging ethos and pathos as well in in rhetoric as well. So I, I think a natural uh, developmental phase, but it's not exclusive to different ages. So students are going to practice being at the lowest level, for example. Yeah, I agree 100%. I've been saying this for years, so I'm thrilled that you have a book out on this because it's very needed. <laughs> well, I always, um, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. I always like to ask our list, our, our guest to uh, end our episode telling us a quote that has had deep meaning to you in your life or a book that you wish you had read sooner in your life? Mm. Boy. Um, a, uh, a book that I wish I had read sooner in my life is probably, I would say, there are many books of that character, but I'd say one in particular would be the the Confessions of Augustine, um, and uh, I would say because of my particular education, I went through a state university system and I was introduced to kind of really philosophy before I um, 
in in the modern mode, and I didn't realize how much, uh, in fact, modern philosophy was was trying to do Augustinianism without the theological commitments. Um, and so I would say I, I wish that I had had read, uh, yeah, Augustine's Confessions much sooner um, than yeah. Wow, I would have to say I agree with that for myself as well. <laughs> it's a great. I've read it twice, and it's definitely one that's worth reading yearly. <laughs> yes. Well, and when we uh, we get to the discussion of the um, the conversion of the five tasks of the order, we can talk a little bit more about the confessions as well, because I think Augustine is doing some things with rhetoric in that context. Oh, that would be lovely. Yes. Connecting it up with what it means to pray the Psalms as a way of understanding one's own life in light of, of God's uh, self-revelation in scripture. So it's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about that. I will say, I'll end saying recently on St. Augustine's feast day, because I love him so much and the confessions has meant a lot to me as well. Personally on his feast day, I decided to, I said, Hey, you know, the opening of a confessions is a prayer. It's a prayer. This book is a prayer. Mm. I'm just going to do my morning prayers, reading this out loud. That's as great. my prayer, yeah. I woke up and I was just a bucket of tears the whole time. It was so beautiful to read it, to not just sit and read it with a cup of coffee, but yeah. to stand at my prayer corner, mm-hmm. facing my icon of Christ and pray that mm-hmm. it was very, very life-changing for me. Uh, and just to, oh, yeah. So anybody who wants to really embrace his book, just Stand in prayer the first few chapters, and it will it will rock your boat. <laughs> Amen. That's how that's how it was meant. I think to be to be read. I, I think so too. I think so too. Well, thank you so much, and we will have definitely. I'll have you back on to talk about more of the trivium since today. I really wanted to focus on grammar, but thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.